Today's scripture comes from uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer, asking for the Spirit to speak. Father, we ask that as your word was now publicly read, that it would now privately do its work in our hearts so that it would be the agent of transformation. For it is through the medium of your infallible and errant word that your spirit unleashes his power so that we can become more like your son, Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. We ask, Father, that no matter what circumstances that we may be going through now, that in this present moment we could have protection, we could have perspective, And we could have power from above to know that we can face all things because of the one who dwells within. And so, Father, use this message for your purposes, and may you be glorified in it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) No one would love me if they knew all the things that I hide. My words fall to the floor as tears drip through the telephone line. Those are the opening lyrics of a song entitled Love Alone by the Christian band Cademan's Call. And if you're not familiar with the song or the band, nevertheless, I'm willing to bet you are familiar with what those words convey. Because who among us don't have things about us that we think are completely unlovable? Whether it's our past, our present struggles, our parents, our performances, our problems that we are facing. We all have things in our lives that function like a very ugly, disgusting scar to where if it was exposed for the outside world to see, our worst fear would come true. No one would love us, no one would come near us, and we would be completely alone. We live in a day and age where we are so consumed of wanting to be loved because we are so terrified of being found out, of being so imperfect. I mean, how else can you explain our culture's obsession with image? We always post only flattering pictures of ourselves on our Instagram or Facebook accounts after, of course, we put the right filter on, right? We obsess with working out excessively at the gym or might even resort to cosmetic surgery because we want to look healthy and whole. Or for some of us, when we were young teenagers, endure the pain of braces, So we can have bad breath (laughs) and painful teeth so that our smile could convey the kind of life we're trying to convince others that we have but really don't. You know the kind that's all well put together. Yes, indeed, we're living in a time and age where we all struggle with this fear of being imperfect because we know we all are. And it leads us to the dread of being unlovable or at least thinking that we are that results in us concluding that we're going to be left all alone. Now, before any of you loners in here say, fine by me, I wouldn't be so sure. Study after study tells us 
that there is a growing loneliness problem that's reaching epidemic and global proportions. Consider these words from an article from the Scientific American entitled, Loneliness is Harmful to Our Nation's Health. It starts off this way, quote, Loneliness can be deadly. This, according to former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, among others, who has stressed a significant health threat. Loneliness has been esteemed to shorten a person's life by 15 years, equivalent in impact to being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes per day. A recent study revealed a surprising association between loneliness and cancer mortality risk, pointing to the role loneliness plays in cancer's course, including responsiveness to treatments. Biologists have shown that feelings of loneliness trigger the release of stress hormones that in turn are associated with higher blood pressure, decreased resistance to infection, and increased risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. There's even evidence that this perceived sense of social isolation accelerates cognitive and functional decline and can serve as a preclinical sign for Alzheimer's disease. Studies have repeatedly shown that those with fewer social connections have the highest mortality rates, highlighting that social isolation can threaten health through lack of access to clinical care, social services, or needed support, end quote. Turns out, loneliness is killing us literally. And the only solution that our culture seems to say is that if you want to avoid it, be perfect. <laughs> How in the world is that possible when the words to Cadman Call is so true of all of us that no one would love us if they knew all the things that we hide? Because we all have something to hide, don't we? We're continuing our series that we started last year through the book of Galatians entitled The One True Faith. And today, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that one of the ways that we know that Christianity is indeed the one true faith is because it addresses the fundamental problem that no other faith can, which is the reason why so many are so alone and so dangerously alone. The problem of perfection. What do we do when the means in which we should never be alone, perfection is not possible to any person? Well, that's the question that Paul will answer as we take a look at our verse. And as we do, three things that I want to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about how perfection is impossible by obeying the law. Perfection is impossible by obeying the law. Number two, perfection is possible through faith in Jesus. And finally, perfection makes possible of never being alone. Perfection is impossible by obeying the law. Perfection is possible through faith in Jesus. And finally, perfection makes possible of never being alone. Let's jump right in. First, perfection is impossible by obeying the law. Read again with me verse 17 of our passage where Paul writes, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Here, Paul begins this passage with a question that actually happens to be the question of his opponents. Just a quick recap, since it's been a while since we've been in Galatians. Paul wrote this letter to a bunch of churches he started in the city of Galatia. And why? Well, because a bunch of false teachers known as Judaizers has infiltrated his church in an attempt to lead them astray with their false teaching. Now, here's what's so ironic. According to these false teachers, these Judaizers, they think Paul is the false teacher. They think he's the one leading all these churches astray. Why? Well, according to them, their understanding of Paul's teachings in their minds constitute a real spiritual danger because according to them, their understanding of Paul's faith and his teachings of the faith encourages people, Christians, to be antinomian. Anti-what? Antinomian. It's a Greek word that literally means against the law or simply put, a lawless person. In other words, these false teachers believe that Paul's brand of Christianity encourages people to live a disobedient, 
lawless lifestyle to where they don't care about obeying the law whatsoever. And to verify their accusation against Paul, they use Paul's own words against him. Words like the ones recorded in the verse right before the one that we just read, verse 16, where Paul wrote this, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Now, when you do a quick read of what I just read, you can easily see how You can misunderstand Paul as if, yes, he is encouraging people to dismiss the importance of obeying God's law, especially what he says at that very last line. No one will be made right with God by obeying the law. The Judaizers were exposed to this teaching of Paul, and immediately red flags went up to where they were like, Paul, dude, what are you doing? Are you actually saying that... Followers of Christ don't have to consider his holy law. Are you saying that in order to be devout followers of Jesus, you just dismiss, you just forget, you just minimize the significance, the importance of obeying him? If you are, do you realize what you're doing? You're condoning lawlessness. In other words, you're condoning imperfection. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, as scripture says. Is this what you're about, Paul? Encouraging people to get rid of the very means of overcoming the fear of being alone, i.e. the law of God? Now, surprisingly, what these Judaizers are saying has some merit to it because it's very possible to take the core essence of what Paul teaches about Christianity, which is God loves me and therefore forgives me in spite of what I have done and twist and pervert it in such a way to where you think it says God loves me and therefore forgives me, so it doesn't matter what I keep doing. And for someone who's been doing this church thing for a while, I know for a fact that this is true. And for those of you veteran saints in here, you know this is true as well. Don't you recognize that inner voice that has tempted you that says something like, hey, go ahead, give in to this temptation. Go ahead, indulge in this sin. After all, God loves you, and he's going to have to forgive you anyway, so you might as well. Sound familiar? So these false teachers are right in recognizing that antinomian living is a real possibility for the Christian, but they're absolutely wrong to accuse Paul of teaching that false teaching, evidenced by his reaction to their accusation at the end of verse 17. What does he say? Certainly not. And to figure out why he's so visceral, listen to how he begins his defense, starting in verse 18. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove to myself to be a transgressor. Now what in the world is he saying there? What is he talking about? What does it mean to rebuild something and how that already shows that you're a transgressor? That makes no sense. Well, maybe this illustration can help. Sorry, ladies, a little quick alert. It's kind of a male illustration. I'm sorry, but maybe this might be helpful to you, but it's good to know. Let's say you're in the market to buy a brand new car. So you go to the local dealership, and right there on the lot is your dream car. It looks beautiful. It's shiny. It's good to go. And so you ask the salesman on the lot, hey, I want to buy that car. And the salesman says, good choice, sir. This car just got its engine rebuilt. It's got its front frame rebuilt. It got its front axle rebuilt, right? Everything is rebuilt, so it's good to go. To which you say, uh, rebuilt? Wait, this is not a new car? Oh, no, 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 sir. This was in a severe car accident. And so we had to rebuild all of it from scratch. It's a new model, though, but it's been rebuilt. Now, for those of you 
who may not know this, don't buy a car like that, okay? Because even though that car may look like it's able to perfectly function the way it's designed, it can't because it's broken. See, just by virtue of the fact that that car has been rebuilt already should tell you that it's broken and that it's not capable of doing what it conveys, it says it can, by just mere outward appearance, you see. The very fact that it's rebuilt is proof that it's already broken, and therefore it's imperfect. And that, in essence, is what Paul is saying here. You see, Paul doesn't have a problem with the law. He doesn't have a problem with a desire trying to be perfect by obeying the law. But what he does have a problem are those who attempt to obey the law. That would be you. That would be me. Okay, and that's exactly the issue, because what is our problem? Do you know what our problem is? The problem is you and I we're broken. You and I have an inner wreckage that has ruined us to the core to where morally, intellectually, psychologically, relationally, even physically, we are broken. And this inner wreckage is something that the Bible calls sin, sin. And any attempt to try or sell ourselves to God as if we're capable of obeying the law to where we can be perfect is just as fraudulent as a rebuilt car trying to convince a buyer that it's capable of functioning perfectly the way the original maker designed it to do. It's simply not true. And to even boast in yourselves of saying you can, you're already lying. You've already transgressed. You've already broken the law. Putting all this together, what's the point? The point is this. No human being is capable of being perfect. That is the essence of what Paul means when he says no one is capable of obeying the law. No one is able to be perfect because of this thing known as sin. And it's because of sin that we are not willing or able to do anything remotely close that is true obedience. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. This is the problem of the human condition, and it's a problem that no one wants to admit to. Like the alcoholic who denies his alcoholism, like the drug addict denying his addiction. There is this universal denial that refuses to say, I am broken, I am a wreck, I am not capable. Instead, we minimize And we say with excuses, oh, I'm a fairly good person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Yeah, I've made some mistakes, but I think overall I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty decent girl. What is that? That's denying the truth. And you know what it's doing? Evidenced by the pervasive problem of loneliness, it's killing us. That denial is so dangerous to our life. And what's so sad is we propagate this denial and the danger attached by making other people comply to such delusions to where we say, I'm only going to love you, I'm only going to accept you if you meet this criteria, if you're this flawless, if you're this perfect. Even though it came out back in the mid-90s, I still remember clear as day listening for the first time Alanis Morissette's debut album, Jagged Little Pill, because on that album is a song called Perfect, And it really resonated with me because it conveyed the message that I heard so often from people that I craved affirmation and love and affection. And maybe you have too. Consider how 
she sings it. She says this quote, sometimes is never quite enough. If you're flawless, then you'll win my love. Don't forget to win first place. Don't forget to keep that smile on your face. Be a good boy. Try a little harder. You've got to measure up and make me prouder. How long before you screw it up? How many times do I have to tell you to hurry up? With everything I do for you, at least you can do is keep quiet. You know, as I read those lyrics to you, I wonder who in your mind you're thinking of who has said those words to you. I wonder who you're thinking of to whom you have said those words to recently. Brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. No one is capable of being perfect, not you, not me. And I know you don't want to hear it because I don't want to hear it. Because it leaves us with this despairing problem. And that is, what do we do about our loneliness? What do we do about the fear of being alone? Which we rightly so, we should be. When the very solution in which we can overcome that fear and the dread, perfection is simply not possible. And that's the question Paul now leads us to answer. And the second point, perfection is possible through faith in Jesus. Read again verse 19 and 20. Paul writes, for through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here Paul explains how perfection is possible to those who are not capable of being perfect. He begins to explain it with that phrase at the beginning of verse 19. I have what? Died to the law. What is he saying there? What does it mean to die to the law? Well, think back what we have said so far. We said that being perfect by obeying the law of God is not possible, which therefore means obeying the law cannot avoid the terror of loneliness, as well as the things that it leads to, namely misery and death. In fact, just the opposite. Paul is actually telling us that when you attempt to obey the law to be perfect, you actually cause your own misery. You actually cause your own death. And you're like, how? That makes no sense. Maybe this personal illustration could help. Imagine for a moment, my seven-year-old, my son, my first son, Judah, if he attempted to drive my Toyota Sienna. Right? Because I know he's itching to drive. He just loves that minivan, right? That's a joke. Obviously, it was a bad one. Okay. Imagine my seven-year-old tries to drive my minivan. Now, the minivan itself is a very safe car. In fact, it was rated as the safest minivan on the planet. Sorry, Honda people. It's true, right? It's a safe vehicle, right? But if my son attempted to drive it, it would be a death trap for him. Not because the minivan is designed to kill him, but because he's not yet designed to drive it. And that essentially is what the law is in the hands of a sinner. The law itself is beautiful, is good, it's holy, is righteous. But in the hands of sinners trying to handle it, trying to come under it, it leads to their own death. So when Paul is using the word law here, he's using it as shorthand to be synonymous with death. So when he says that I died to the law, what he's really saying is I died to death. I died to death. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, if you consider what Paul writes elsewhere, you can figure out what he means by that. Listen to what he says in Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? 
Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Pause right there, your attention. Paul notice, uses similar language that he does in our passage with this reference of being dead to something. In this instance, he says what? I have died to sin, verse 2. I have died to sin. So we wonder, what does, what's the difference between being dead to sin and having died to the law? Right? Excuse me, dead to death and die to sin. The answer, there's no difference. Functionally the same thing. Whenever there is sin, there's death. Whenever there's death, there's sin. Those two things always come together. They can never exist apart from each other. They always go hand in hand, which is why Paul says in Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin. So recapping what's been going on so far, Paul talks about of having died to the law, which really means die to death. Romans 6 tells us that die to death really means die to sin. So what is Paul saying in a very long-winded way? When he says die to sin, he's meaning die to imperfection. Because what is sin? Sin is being imperfect. Sin is not being perfect at all. So being died to the law, he's saying I have died to imperfection and I'm living on to perfection. See, just in that little phrase is deep theology where Paul is saying it is possible for an imperfect person to be perfect. It is possible for a person to die to imperfection and to rise again to perfection. How? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Many Bible scholars, many theologians, maybe many pastors say that this is perhaps the greatest verse for any Christian to live out, to memorize, to meditate on. And I happen to agree. Because within these words, Paul identifies the only way any human being can be perfect. The only way any human being can truly be perfect. You have to be crucified with Christ. You have to be crucified with Christ. Now, what in the world does that even mean? Read again, Romans 6, this time focus to verse 3 down to verse 5. Or have you forgotten that we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives since we have been united with him in his death. We were also raised to life as he was. When a person gets baptized, that's when they become a Christian. And according to Paul, the central identification marker of a Christian is someone who is what? United to Christ. United to Christ. Now, what does that mean to be united to Christ? Uh, Many people have asked me over the years, and I've searched and searched for a helpful analogy, and I finally found one, and it's marriage. So see if you can follow along. When two people get married, they become united, right? They become one flesh, as the scriptures say. And this union that they share between husband and wife really pans out in four categories. First, a husband is united to his wife legally. And what that practically means is that if, you know, the man marries a very rich, successful, wealthy woman, all that money that she possesses is now legally hers, okay? But conversely, 
if the man marries with a lot of debt, with a lot of bill collectors collecting after him, that means as soon as they are married, that wife is now legally responsible to pay for those things if the guy is not able to pay, right? Because he's united to his wife legally. Secondly, a man is united to his wife uh, in terms of identity. When a woman marries her husband, usually, what happens? She changes her name, literally, where the name in which she was born into, the name she grew up in, is no longer more Patty's like, mm, speak for yourself, Pat. That's John, right? Normally, I said normally. Where you take on a new identity because you take on a new family name, the name of your husband, right? Where you have a new identity, a new marker that sets you apart. Third, a man, when he's united to his wife, they're united relationally to where when they are saying I do to each other on the wedding vows, they're saying I don't to everyone else, which means when they say I do, they're literally dying to other people where they're not relationally available to anyone else because they're dead as a bachelor, they're dead as a bachelorette. They are now faithfully relationally committed to each other. Fourth, a man and his wife are united in terms of influence. Before I married Sarah, to my shame, I was a dirty slob. I put dirty clothes everywhere on the floor. I put dirty dishes in the sink. Now, I'm as clean as a whistle, right? Because the power of her love and her fury has changed me over the years to where now I become more and more like her. I start taking on the characteristics and the attributes that she possessed to where it influences me. These four ways in which we are united to our spouse if we are married has a parallel analogy to our union with Christ. When the Christian is united to Christ, he's united, she is united to him legally where all of the righteousness that he earned through his perfect obedience to the Father gets credited to us, the sinner. But conversely, all of our debt, all of the punishment that should come from the sin that we've committed is now his legal responsibility to where he has to pay. Christians are united to Christ. Secondly, relationally, right? Or excuse me, identity-wise. To where when they get baptized, they take on a new name. I baptize you. We saw it last week with Eric. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, you take on a new name. You take on the name Christian to where now the defining relationship between you and God is not between a slave and a master. It's not between a subject and a king, but most preeminently between a child and a father. Then third, a Christian is united to Christ relationally, as I just said before, to where their life as a sinner is now forsaken because they said, I do to Christ. And they no longer live a life of independence and, and, and individuality, but they live connected to where their identity is centered on their relationship of faithful love and commitment to Christ. And then fourth, a Christian is united to Christ influentially to where the more you walk with Jesus, the more his attributes, the more his characteristics, like his perfections, start rubbing off on you. And now you see how an imperfect person starts acquiring perfection more and more. The longer they are united and the more they foster that union that they have with Jesus Christ. This is how a person who has no power in themselves to be perfect gets access to the only power to be perfect. You must be united to Jesus Christ. Now, this heavy emphasis of Paul making 
about this idea of united to Christ as the only way to be perfect and hence avoid loneliness, something we need to linger on, right? Because one of the things that Paul is saying through all of this, he's saying that if you truly want to avoid loneliness by being perfect in Christ, you must have faith in the Christ that is united to you. Because if you do, he says, what? You'll never be lonely again. And you're like, what? Are you sure? Let me explain by going to my final point. Perfection makes possible of never being alone. I'm sure, I don't have to convince any of you, that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you won't struggle with loneliness. In fact, I'm sure there are many veteran saints in here now who may be or are still struggling with loneliness right now. And what I just said a moment ago, that if you're in Christ, you'll never be lonely, just does not comport to your daily life as we speak. But it's for that reason. You have to read verse 20 one more time in its entirety. Read it again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, it's interesting. Paul, in these words, is not simply saying that it's only through Jesus that we avoid being alone. But he also says that the only person who can truly satisfy our loneliness is Jesus alone. Again. Paul doesn't just tell us that it's only through Jesus that we avoid being alone, but he actually says the only person who can actually truly satisfy our loneliness is Christ alone. You see that phrase, crucified with Christ? Many people say, oh yeah, that's him saying that we need to be united with Jesus, as I just mentioned in my last point. But Paul is actually saying so much more, so much more. And to help you get what I'm saying, consider this quote from theologian Christopher Ashe. He writes this quote, There is a famous poem from Henry Scott Holland, which begins, Death is nothing at all. I have only slipped into the other room next door. But it's not true. If you are around when I die and someone suggests saying that poem at my funeral, please point out to them that I've really slipped into the room next door. I have carelessly managed to leave my body behind. I will be separated from those who love me, and they from me. We will be scattered, and no amount of philosophical make-believe will gather us in this life. Death scatters and separates human beings most cruelly of all. It breaks human fellowship and harmony forever. There is no camaraderie beyond the grave. Even if men and women were able to live harmony on earth, they would still be scattered by death. What's he saying? He's saying death is the ultimate form of loneliness. Evidenced by the fact that a person who is in the process of dying feels more and more alone with each passing day. Yeah, they can be surrounded by their loved ones on their deathbed, but with each passing breath leading closer and closer to their final one on earth, they will inevitably be overwhelmed with this unavoidable and inescapable dread of being completely separated and severed from their loved ones. Dying leads to the ultimate experience of loneliness, death, which means no one can go with you to your death. Unless, of course, you're a Christian. Because when Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ, do you realize what he's saying? He's saying there is one person who can go with you to your death. There is someone who can accompany you in the most loneliest journey of all. That's Jesus. This is what's so amazing about this mysterious bond, this union with Christ that's so gloriously mysterious. It's a union that is so strong that it allows us to experience dying, not as the most loneliest experience of all, but as the most loving experience of all. How so? Let me explain. God, by his nature, cannot die. He is immortal. 
And yet the gospel tells us that God came into the world as a moral human being, Jesus Christ. Why? So that he could die the full penalty for your sins, my sins, as a substitute Savior. And what was that penalty? Was it simply physical pain? Was it simply physical death? No, it was utter, complete isolation where Jesus Christ, the man who has known the Father's love for eternity past, for three hours on a Friday, experienced complete severance, complete separation, complete darkness. Why do you think the cross was covered with darkness the moment Jesus died? Because that was the beginning of the worst part of the crucifixion for Jesus. It was where Jesus was severed. He was isolated. He was alone. And he suffered the greatest loneliness of all. And why did he do that? Verse 20, because he loved me, because he loves you. And it's this love that you experience firsthand in the process of your own death. Because as you unavoidably begin this journey towards death on your deathbed, where you go through the process of sorrow, separation, and being scared, eventually you'll be met by someone who's gone ahead of you. You'll see someone who also went with sorrow, who also went with separation, who was also scared, but you won't end up where he ended up on those three hours Friday afternoon. Because he will stop what that process should lead you to if God was completely just, but won't because God is gracious. Not eternal darkness and isolation, but in the presence of light, in the bosom of your Father. That is what the gospel teaches us. And as a result, now that your sorrow turns to joy, death has no fear upon you. Death has no power over you. It is extinguished, and instead, no more loneliness, but now peace and connection. I love how Charles Spurgeon, the great British London preacher, put it this way, quote, There is an essential difference between the decease of the godly and the death of the ungodly. Death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. To the sinner, it's an execution. To the saint, an undressing from his sins and infirmities. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors, the commencement of glory. Beautiful, isn't it? Here's the thing I want to leave you with. If Jesus is the only person who can alleviate the ultimate loneliness by being the only one who can be present with us in our death, doesn't that tell us that all of our loneliness and all of its various permutations are really pointing to this one? Some of you in here are lonely for a baby. Some of you are lonely for a spouse. Some of you are lonely for a friend. And maybe they'll come, maybe they won't. But perhaps the joy that you can leave with today, that even if you are lonely because of the missing persons of those, you can be encouraged to know that you will not be neglected by the person that these people ultimately point to and you will truly be home, and you will never be alone again. That's the hope. That's the charge I leave with you. Can you hold on to it in faith? A couple next steps. 
you're here today investigating the Christian faith, and today's message truly resonated with you to a tipping point moment to where you're ready to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, take this time now, go to God and say, Lord, I acknowledge you finally for who you are. You're my creator, you're my king, but most of all, you're my father, and I repent of my sins, and I commit my life to you. Come talk to me afterwards. I would love to help you in your next steps. Number two, are you cultivating a life of genuine holiness to further deepen your intimacy with Christ? That's a question, Christian, that I feel like you need to answer. You know, one of the ways you can figure this out is if you have fallen to either the error of antinomian living, where you're abusing your grace, or legalism, obeying the law yourself in a pathetic attempt to be perfect. So often, we try to portray ourselves as that brand new car when we're nothing but rebuilt, hiding the brokenness within. It's time to stop lying to yourself and to everybody else, but especially to God. Further on, pick up a copy of The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges, a fantastic book that changed my life when I became a Christian back in 1996, a book that has stayed with me and continues to do so, and I hope will begin to stay with you. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to come together as your people and that we would give up this foolish attempt to be perfect, especially in a community like ours, especially with the people that we're with here in this room. Father, we are not a community trying to put up a front with one another. We are not trying to play games. Lord, we want to be a community that's open and honest to where, though it is true, it seems that no one would love us if they knew what we hide. The reality is that because of the gospel, we can show our sins, we can show our errors because there is hope, because there is a means of perfection through your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that every single person in this room will come to understand that, especially those of us who seem so hopeless and so lost, with a certain sin or maybe a pattern of sins, whether it falls in the category of sexuality, whether it falls in the category of pride or anger or just downright pride. Lord, help us to know that we can be set free and that we'll never, ever have to worry about being alone. Jesus, thank you that you are our great friend and that you stand by our side and that you will come with us even when no one else can follow, even as desperate as they try. For you are the God who has gone ahead of us, and you wait for us to come into your presence. So, Father, help us to live out this truth, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.